I'm Casey Brazil. And I'm TJ Barczyk. And this is Work Friends. Work Friends is a podcast about business, entrepreneurship, and work. So I wanted to start off talking a little bit about something that's kind of been fascinating me recently, which is simulation. Uh, when I first brought this topic up to you, you were like, oh, like AI, which is something we talked a little bit right. about in the past. But I wanted to get more specifically into computer simulation. I don't know if you saw recently Elon Musk, and I want to kind of summarize his statements <laughs> on this, suggested that we might be living in a computer simulation like all human life. Have you, yeah, did you yeah. see that? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I think I actually believe it, just to give listeners the brief. I, I, I'm nice. bored with this. And it, it's, a, it's actually a... I'm glad you're summarizing it and not me. There's a, there's a legal... There's a way to think about this in the way of... Because his argument is prove me wrong, and there is no way to prove him wrong, which doesn't necessarily make him right, but it makes him... That's why I believe it, I guess. Yeah, it's one of those questions where you can't be like, oh no, look it up. Yeah. Life is not a simulation. Yeah. So his theory is essentially the rate, the half-life of technology is increasing at an ever-rapid rate. We are very, very close to creating a simulation matrix-esque thing where you could walk in or you could be born into a simulation. Your brain could be functioning on a different plane than what your body is, or the physical reality. And we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a physical reality and a virtual reality. If that is true, we have created it. It would be a ridiculous assumption to think we are Gen 1 and the first one to do that. Because the first generation that creates that simulation, theoretically there'd be a generation within that simulation that creates a deeper simulation, that creates a deeper simulation. So that would theoretically go on forever. You could loop time. There's all those sort of benefits or you know issues with that. To think we're... No, we're the first ones to create this is, is kind of a ridiculous assumption. First of all, I think that the don't be so full of yourself side of that argument is appealing. It kind of <laughs> reminds me of, like, I don't know if you ever read Flatland. No. It, basically, the idea of Flatland is it's this whole book from the perspective of a two-dimensional being. And you, the reader, know that there are three dimensions. But quickly, when you get <laughs> if, to the end if, of the book... If Mario Paper was a, a living, breathing person. It's basically Mario <laughs> Paper, but by a mathematician. But you get to the end of the book, and it's like, don't be so smug. Yeah. You know, if you can only perceive three dimensions, that doesn't mean that's all there is. I think that's a, that part of it is compelling. I also find it... I think it has a lot of assumptions in it. So one of them is that things within a simulation become sentient, which I feel like is a more difficult point to argue. But I, I don't want to go too deep down <laughs> right. that rabbit hole. I'll just say I've, I'm a little bit less sympathetic to it than you are. In any case, the world seems to be talking about simulations, and uh, another thing that's kind of happening at the same time is this amazingly deep and large video game called No Man's Sky is about to come out. It comes out on Thursday of this week, which will be the day before this podcast comes out. And it's a space video game, like many before it, uh, with the important difference that it is 18 quadrillion planets so what does that mean? Yeah, quadrillion? Yeah, is that, quadrillion. Is that an that's actual, a real word. That's a real math yeah. uh, number? So I wrote an article about it. I did it in uh, scientific is notation that, is that because right I couldn't write out the number. <laughs> no, no. 
Oh, what is it actually? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, million, Sounds made up. Billion, trillion, quadrillion. This is the fourth. Makes trillion, sense. three, quad. Right. Okay. No, hey, this is the service we provide the listener. <laughs> the more you know. The thing that's interesting about this game, other than saying it's really big, is that it's procedurally generated. So rather than programming each planet or each rock, they made a very deep set of rules that this program then uh, played out many times on its own. So this is something called procedurally generated, uh, as opposed to, like, if you ever played Mario, we just talked about Mario Play Paper, yeah. but, like, if you ever play Mario, every Goomba is, you know, somebody, that's program. Somebody dropped that there. Somebody dropped that there. In this world, they, you know, made up a set of rules for creating animals, like Goombas, and then the computer made so many different varieties of those animals and they made up a, a rubric for creating mountainscapes yep. and on and on and on that's all well and good and interesting for entertainment and you know entertainment has come a long way to the point where now video game companies are in the fortune 500 not just technology companies like apple and microsoft but just straight yeah. entertainment companies but i think that simulation is kind of in its infant infancy. Like there's something Absolutely. important that's going to happen and change, and it's not going to be simply for our diversion. At some point, we're going to try and uh, apply this to other industries, and I think it could really be groundbreaking, and the, the industries that are good at this will have a huge leg up at, on the ones that don't. So I wrote an article this week about city planning and how this could uh, apply to city planning, but I think it has the it has the potential to be so much more than that. So I wanted to kind of I, that's a lot of talking, there's a lot of setup, um, but it's kind of a deep, interesting idea. I wanted to start by asking, like, obviously people try and simulate or uh, speculate on what will happen in any market, in any business. You know, should we come out with a raisin brand that has figs or whatever, right? And we always do mathematical modeling. Like it's very, very crude, simple things are done in every industry. Is this something? I, don't know if I call them crude. Well, you, I mean, yeah, they, yeah. they run the gamut. You look right? at the finance markets; those are not crude yeah, they, or anything. But yeah, absolutely. So they could go from the most complex to the. Right. I'm going to sell lemonade. I need to guess how much lemonade <laughs> I can sell. Right. right? Sure. We all we all do that. Yeah. Uh, so we all kind of, you know, in a way, that's like the most base simulation. Is this? Can you? Could you see this kind of hitting the industries that we're that we're familiar with? So like, yeah, I know we worked absolutely. in food, and in doing VR with food, you're you're absolutely taking people into a simulation. Could you? Could you see kind of this next step in technology? Yeah, really absolutely. And industry? I think your your point is really drawing that line between. Right, mathematical modeling and I don't want to call it AI, but the procedurally generated modeling. That's that's the delineation. I don't know how distinct that delineation truly is. So mm -hmm. the last startup I worked with, right, we built virtual reality grocery stores. We had actual people go in, shop for their products, you know, go buy toothpaste. Uh, they would go buy toothpaste, then we'd have you know three hundred people go through and do that. Then we'd change the packaging on one of the products and see and put three hundred more people through it and see how you know did the new packaging increase or decrease sales on that item 
what did it do for the category as a whole, what did it do for the store as a whole, all these kind of simple, simple stuff. But at the end of the day, that was real people, right? Yeah. Theoretically, with procedurally generated, you could simulate those people. And Absolutely. you could put 10,000 people through them instead mm-hmm. of 300 and get a better assumption, um, less variance, all that sort of stuff. The fear is, because we could do that. There's no reason we couldn't We could do, do that, that right now. We could do that right now is the assumptions you put in, right? Yes. So when you're building a planet, mountains can only be this high, there can only be so many mountains per whatever square mile or whatever it may be. Trying to assume people's behavior mm-hmm. is is really, really hard in the moment, let alone three months from now. Yeah. Just because we don't know what the environment's going to look like and trying to assume people's behaviors across geographies, across life situations across Mm -hmm. demographics across psychographics it's i I couldn't imagine trying to create that set of a set of assumptions for people's behavior which is what drives most of our work right whether you're working at a fast food joint you're trying to drive finance markets you're working in the food industry all we're trying to predict is people's behavior yeah and i don't know how you assume that i think you're i think you hit on a really key thing like any system is as good as its assumptions and that's just as, as simple as it is i think that where deeper, more complex simulations can be more helpful than the type of, you know, human user survey generated data is where the systems get more complex. So like maybe it's all well and good to say, I'm going to put a person through a computer simulation and they're going to give me real data and that's better than having a million fake people do it. But if you're looking at something over a more complex system, so like take the the example I took in the article is traffic. When uh, it's something that people will argue over and over again in downtowns, well, should we make all of these streets two-lane one-ways so that we get through them more efficiently, or should we make them two-ways? And, you know, two-ways are are necessarily slower because you have – you know, you have more to deal with as a driver, but how slow that is, is always kind of a, a matter of argument, right? And while that on itself is a simple question, once you've mapped out a whole city, you know, saying, okay, I changed these yeah. four streets versus I changed those four streets, that's a place <laughs> where there's so many variables you might want to A-B test. I think it could be extremely valuable to have a dense network of simulations that you could run against. Yeah, run against multiple different scenarios because the human brain brain can only really do A, B, and then whoever wins on A, B, you put versus C, and so on and so forth. And if the question is, should we change the packaging to this or not, then that's simple enough that you you wouldn't want something like this. But if the question is, like, I want you to think of a million kinds of packaging that I would never think of myself, even if I had time forever – and test them all. And most of them are totally preposterous. But at some point, the computer tests something that you wouldn't have. Yeah. And you get data that you couldn't have possibly generated with people. Yeah, and I think it, just, it, it still just makes me nervous, especially on the assumption side. I mean, take uh, traffic circles, right? Traffic circles sure. theoretically help traffic. What we fail to assume is that people don't know how to use traffic circles and they end up hurting situations more than and angering people, even though they actually lessen traffic. The traffic circle question is an interesting one because, yeah, I don't have a strong position on roundabouts, but you have a changeover 
anytime you change anything in a city, you have a changeover premium, yep. right, that you pay. Just like it might make sense to move the U.S. to the metric system, but there's going to be a long time where that right. sucks for everybody who grew up not in the metric system, even if we're pretty sure we'd be better off in the long term getting yeah. It's also just like a, a majority rule thing, right? If most roads are, if most turns are, you know, mm. angled, mm -hmm. right, and that's what people know, then that's, if most of our turns are roundabouts, then that would be, people would understand that it's easy to I'm an Apple user because that's what I'm used to. Yeah, right. It's it's that that same argument. You don't want to pay that switching cost, but I think you could bear out those kind of hypotheses much easier once you create a framework simulation that's that's has this kind of depth where you can say like, oh well, is the problem that five percent of our intersections are roundabouts and it should be seventeen or it should be eighteen or it shouldn't be it should be seventeen but it should be these seventeen instead of right. those. The speed with which you can run through the amount of things, I think, is is going to be... We're so stuck in this world where we think of VR as for fighting dragons. And <laughs> I don't. Yeah, and you... Because <laughs> I worked in Well, space. absolutely. Yeah. Well, talking to you and your industry that you worked in made me think, like, oh, of course, simulations shouldn't just be, be for play. Yep. We, I mean, we tested out Wendy's new menus to see if the burger should be on panel one or should be on panel two. You don't realize, like... We can simulate anything you experience in the real world and test which ones work better, which ones drive more sales, totally. which one encourage you to buy more stuff, right, to go a little commercial <laughs> macro. Yeah, and some things make sense to be like, I'm going to put you in situ, I'm going to put you in the environment and you're going to look around. But some things, just having, you know, having a program where you kind of look at it from the God's eye, like right. a city <laughs> sure. or whatever, you know, it's easy to think about cities because... They've been making cities that are just for your entertainment <laughs> yeah. since we were tiny kids. Right. But like, there's no reason yeah. that SimCity has to be something that you make to be fun. You could make yeah. a thing like that that could be much more useful as a tool. And it's like any large project has these huge costs associated with oh, it. Yeah. And the my idea six, my six-year-old son is really into video game design, which I can't help him with. But I, I know Google SketchUp, right? 3D modeling software. So... I was like, oh, I taught him like, some basics, and he just like built a city, like six-year-old kid on a computer, virtually, you know, completely 3D modeled a city from scratch. So yeah, it's, it's especially generationally, I think we can just wrap our heads around that's the the modeling side and then the simulation side of it, just so much better. Absolutely, and it's like it's not that architects don't already use computers right. and do shit like this, but the scale that they do it on is laughably small yeah. when we think about what's possible and you know when you hear about a video game where it's like every planet has its own ecosystem and its own animals and its own plant life and it's not the the idea of procedural generation there's going to be usages that i can't foresee and you can't of foresee course. but it's something to put in your mind this is going to be a tool that's that's going to reshape our world and it's not just computers becoming smart enough to learn and do their own thing. It's you writing, even before AI, it's us writing the program and then saying, program, go create yourself. Once again, it's weird to keep going back to the assumption. It's a, it's a fuzzy. Because we, we, listen, I'm, I'm all about assumptions. We make assumptions at work and all, whenever we have meetings, we say, hey, we have to work with the best assumptions we have. Of course. And that's the decision we make. And that's, we, I should be okay with a computer doing that exact same thing that I'm okay with doing myself. It, it makes me nervous, and maybe it's like, you know, the old liberal, like, 
you know, a computer would say we should all speak the same same language because that's the most efficient system for our, our thing. Mm. You know, the, the mm-hmm. system say that every city should look like this, mm. right? <laughs> so you're worried that there's like the a lot. There's like a lots of culture. There's like a, a do we want to live in a computer generated world? I think you raise an important question. We have to decide what things we want to be efficient and good, and what things we don't. Calling balls and strikes in a baseball game. <laughs> I'm ready for that to be a computer. Yeah, that technology has existed forever. I don't feel like we lose anything when we lose the umpire behind the plate. But you're right. Cities should be different. Uh, what is more your culture than the place you live and what right. that place looks like? However, it seems like being a terrible Luddite to say, I don't want to know how to make this better. Yeah. And the other thing to remember is we're not just talking about blind assumptions when we make simulations. Right? We use the scientific method to try and get to the best possible inputs. If something happens a thousand times, you say, well, 600 times it happened like this, that might be the best, you know, thing to simulate. But if you get enough data that, well, now it's happened 5,000 times and something else happens, it's easy to tweak those assumptions once you build in the system. I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope it is. Because obviously the, the thing is... Like, Until it becomes sentient someone, and kills someone us. Someone creates this you know, video game version for cities, and they sell it to every city manager in every city across the country. And if the assumptions are the same, what, what, what do we end up with? Absolutely. I think that in every way that the technology, that technology makes the world smaller makes a greater danger of monopolies. Exactly. So especially every new company. There's, it's going to be hard for Lyft to compete with Uber, much less a million Uber clones, right? You might, if you have a very restrictive country like China that says, screw it, we're going to do our own Uber, you might get a competitor there, and it seems like that's going to happen. But I, it's hard for me to see a future where, like, McDonald's has six large competitors. <laughs> right. There are six large Uber competitors. I don't think that's going to happen. There's not six large Amazon yeah. competitors. There's not six large Facebook competitors. So depressing. Yeah, yeah it absolutely <laughs> is. Well, I mean, I think it's, it, it's, a, it's a different issue, but it's an important one. I think that, you know, how do you do regulation in the new world where it's, you don't have the same geographic things that just naturally break up monopolies like once did many years ago? You made me sad, Casey. Let's, let's end it there. Let's jump to your topic, TJ. What do you got for us this week? Yeah, a couple of podcasts ago, we did kind of the non-monetary benefits of work. Let's let's do the getting paid and uh, the way people get paid, mission versus salary. I want to get into a little bit of like tier structures and big business, small business, uh, you know, incentivizing employees, all that sort of stuff. So. We'll start off with the commission piece. Have you ever had a commission? You've had bonuses. I mean, have you ever been? You've never really done sales. No, I've never really worked sales. Everything that I've worked that's been salesy. I I used to work as a fundraising consultant, and they were part of an association which made it illegal to accept any kind of a commission off of fundraising. Like that's how the that particular industry runs. I worked for a fundraising thing where I got half of every dollar I collected. <laughs> totally. Well, it's different when you're on the street versus yeah. when you're wearing a suit and tie. I mean, I'm sure some suited people. Anyway, <laughs> we, it was a, it, it's a slightly different industry. But I have pretty much always worked either... It's funny how many ways there are to get paid now that I started to think oh, about yeah. it. I've always worked hourly, salary, 
or freelance. And freelance is pretty much the same as hourly, but it has that extra element of, you know, catch what you eat. Well, I, you know, I was thinking about this when, you know, talking about commission, because freelance is a little bit of commission, right? Absolutely. It's, it's very much, you. the more you work, the more you get paid, right? It's like you're the CEO and only <laughs> member of a very small company. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, salary, right? If you, as long as you do enough to not get fired, you will make the same amount of money. You can work more trying to get a promotion. You can work more to feel more successful, but like literally working beyond that not getting fired point is not going to help you financially in a salary based. And it's very different from being freelance and it's very different from all the sales gigs. (laughs) Yeah. And and hourly, I guess is the same way, right? It's it's, it's, like, I don't want to, do you think, because this is the, right, the conservative capitalistic argument is that salary hourly employees, because they are not incentivized to work beyond the not get fired point, do you think commission or incentive-based structures incentivize employees more? It's like you're asking me, is a Phillips head screwdriver better (laughs) than a flathead? Like, a Phillips head screwdriver is better for Phillips head jobs. A flathead is better for flathead jobs. There are certain things in, I think that the commission system is very much proven out. You know, I think there's a reason that it exists in the industries it exists in. However, there are many things that it would be difficult to make be commission-based, and there are many things in which, even if it weren't difficult, it would be a bad idea, because you want longer-term goals to eclipse short-term goals. This is something that I've seen in places uh, that I've worked in, even that we've worked together, where I've seen the negative impact of commissions, or the the way it makes really short-term thinking come to the front. I think that's Hard to avoid in any company, but I think commission-based pay exacerbates that. So let's bring it into kind of our world, right? Sales and marketing. Because I, I think mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of actually pretty good representations of this. Because sales the, is the stereotypical commission, right? We want people incentivized. The problem with it is it makes short-term, it makes very individual-oriented, not team-oriented players, the negative sides of that. Marketing, because it's um, more creative-based and those sort of things, it's, it's harder to track. Uh, numbers-wise, those tend to be salary jobs. And we've kind of accepted yeah. marketing jobs are salary jobs, and we don't want them to be commissioned. With the possibility of a bonus. Right, right. But that's a, a team, usually a team-oriented bonus, not even an individual. Like It's based on if the company or the brand you're working on succeeds, not your individual project succeeding. Yeah, I've, kind of seen, I've seen it kind of done both ways, but yeah, you're right. So let me turn this question back over to you, because I know this is something you've thought about a lot, and I think that maybe Advantage was kind of like this. What do you think about when, like, to flatten out a bureaucracy, a large company says, everyone with this title makes this salary? First of all, just to to lead into it, super against it. Very, very much against it. A supervisor in, in the Northeast could have more responsibility, more work than a director on the West Coast or in a different brand or a different department or whatever, you know, vertical of a company could be. So to tier it, I, I think it's it's a it's a way companies justify their actions and prevent salary raises in many, many ways. They're like, you know, this is our tier for managers, you're at the top of it, that's all we can do, it's out of my hands, right? So mm-hmm. almost a way to, you know, get people to stop asking for raises a little bit and to, to control costs on that side. Because if you're, you know, a supervisor in the in the highest, you know, earning part of a company and you're at the top of that tier, unless you get promoted, like what, there's no recourse or there's no, I guess it incentivizes people leaving, but I don't know, the, the negative side of that. Sure, um, let me be the devil's advocate though. Because, so I've never experienced this, 
because uh, I've always worked at smaller places where it didn't make sense to do something like that. But if I'm sitting at the on the board of a Fortune 500 company and I know that I have a thousand directors who more or less have the same responsibilities, shouldn't I kind of want some oversight over what all those people get paid? Because if I say, well, each individual supervisor decides, then their biases, their prejudices, like it could be sure. a way to make it, it, it more fair. It, it definitely is a way to take advantage oversight. of the system. Yeah, if, if you take away the tiers, there's, I don't want to call it corruption, but there's... The possibility the, at least the exists. The possibility of, of all those sort of things exist. I tend to think... Teams work best when they have control over their uh, finances, right? Mm. Uh, so a, a lot of times, you know, teams will have, uh, you know, their, their – it, it, I feel like it doesn't incentivize or doesn't um, encourage employees to look out for the, the P&L statements of that individual team. Yeah. The further you push that P&L statement down where the director has control over a P&L or the manager or the supervisor, whatever it may be, um, a, it, it, transparency, I think, always encourages accountability, right? The more mm-hmm. transparent we can be and the more uh, access those supervisors have to that, that they will act accordingly and act in the best interest of the company. Uh, but also there's a, the, you know, it, because they have that control over it, they will, they tend to know their business better than the VPs do most, most of the time. Mm. Does that make sense? So... It seems like, you know, overall, you're making an argument for autonomy, you know, that, that basically the greater autonomy you give to whatever your team is, hey, you're in charge of this, you decide how yeah, to spend I, the money, yeah. you decide how to pay your... And it, you know, it, your it does, it, obviously, the McKinsey, right, the biggest kind of consulting firm in the world, they, they've made a, a living out of two models, right? They'll take very vertical organizations that have a bunch of layers, mm-hmm. and they'll flatten them out, and they'll give each one's autonomy. The problem with that is they run in 18 different directions and they tend to not have any oversight and there's all these sort of issues. So literally McKinsey will come back five to seven years later and say, here's the problem with your company. You need to make it more vertical. You need to add all these new layers and all these sort of things. They've been doing this for 30 years. It's the shampoo and conditioner. (laughs) You know, like you take the shampoo, take the grease out. You take the conditioner, put the grease back in. Put the grease back in. Exactly. So any change to the structure of a company will work for three to five years. It's the old, like, change the lighting in a, in a factory argument. Mm. Simply by making a change, it almost encourages activity. And, of course, you're oversimplifying that. Of Not course. any change. If you make it so, like, <laughs> yes. you have faulty wires or whatever. Yeah. But giving employees who feel like they don't have any autonomy autonomy, they will be excited. And they will work harder. Mm-hmm. And then they'll be like, this company doesn't know what the hell they're doing. We need more structure. And you add more structure. And they're like, this is great. Uh, but those things, right, once they become normalized tend to become less, you know, successful or less. Uh, so I, I'm curious if this, if the impact would be the same on pay, right? If you're a commission-based employee, they move to salary, half the employees would theoretically be upset and half would be right because your salary is going to be based on the average pay of, of yeah. that. It's, it's one of those things that's very hard to change. It's like, you, it's like your argument with tipping. Right, yep. like it's hard to, to take out tipping once you've had it in yeah. before. And we've we've talked about the the gravity payments, uh, the guy who paid all of his employees seventy thousand dollars, and how 
there was a bunch of people really upset about that because they used to be kind of top of the pyramid and now they're right in with everyone else. But give a little bit more background. So this was like uh, some kind of internet company. And yeah, it was like said, a PayPal back office payments moving money. The, the idea was not that like there's three tiers, but quite literally, if you work here, you make whatever number, 70K. There was a minimum amount. So I think there were people above 70,000. Like if you were at 90, you stayed at 90. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But all the you know, managers who were making 70 were not making the same as the secretary, right? So they've created a minimum, mm -hmm. right, a, a minimum wage essentially that was 70 grand for everyone that came. A fine and, minimum wage. <laughs> oh, of course, it was yeah. great. There was a, a couple accounts uh, of people that were, you know, managers making 70 grand that felt less appreciated. Sure. Which is, which... I could imagine being like, sorry, man, I can't do this. Yeah, but at, at the same time, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't coming out of they were making the same amount of money. They were doing the same job. If anything, the people around them were happier. So it probably sure. made the workplace happier. Maybe. I guess I, I, guess I don't know. It, it seems like the tide has turned a little bit based on some of the new stuff we were looking at before the podcast here in that people are, now that they've kind of sussed out the people who are not encouraged by that system, the people they brought in, right? You're not going to apply to this company unless you're okay yeah. with this system. So when I, and this we, we talked about this in the past too is like any system whether it's commission whether it's salary, I think if you get people into that it's almost the opposite of the structure piece is is like if people apply to it knowing it's commission you're gonna attract commission, yep. right? People who like commission based systems. Mm -hmm. If you're a salary you're gonna have people apply who like salary, right? Totally. So it's almost getting you know if you're a startup it's easy but if you're a hundred year old company it's much more difficult. Yeah, and we've kind of done a survey of this topic. But I would imagine, just knowing you, that like your ambition leads you to say, I want to be able to grab the brass ring. I don't want to work at some, like, we made communism exist in our <laughs> one company. You want to work someplace where you can push yourself and either move up or move out. Um, is yeah, that I, right? I, or I'm, am I putting no, the wrong I'm, words in your mouth? I think you're right. Uh, I'm much more motivated by the non-monetary, like the the external pieces. That you want to build a great company. I want to build a. I want the company to succeed. I mean, my you know my interview answer, which I if I do believe, is that right. I want to go to a place where I can have an impact and where I can see here's what the company is, here's what I did to make the company get to somewhere else. That's what motivates me and gets me excited. Um, that's why, like, I, I I have a hard time working for big companies where your impact is so much smaller. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so. You know, the the pay piece, I I actually tend to avoid commission based, even though like I live in the sales world and these sort of things, because I want individuals on my team who are motivated by the non monetary pieces. So if you make it salary with like a team based bonus, similar to marketing, where it's a, a team based goal, I much prefer quarterly team bonuses as compared to annual. Annuals, I think uh, we can get into that a little bit as well. Easier to football. When you, the bigger you make the time period. It's easier, yeah. It's easier to football. It's, it's yeah, manipulate. Just waiting a year for payments, it kind of, you, you, I think employees lose track of it. They don't concentrate. If it's, if it's a quarterly goal that you have to hit, and you can't, it's harder to, you know, adjust the numbers. It's harder to, but it also keeps people motivated, right? That's have, funny. I haven't thought about that, but it makes all the sense in the world to me. It's, well, part of the reason annual goals is that if anyone leaves during that year, they do you not get it. There's a financial benefit uh, to the company to make annual, you know, benefits and that sort of side as compared to quarterly. Quarterly, you're going to end up paying a lot more. Totally. I wanted to say back to you when you were like, 
I tend to not want to work in commission-based places. I think, you know, from just a gut reaction level, I immediately say, oh, yeah. But I know that commissions must work, right? Oh, yeah. And from, you know, let's say it's your money, right, as a company. If you say, well, my payroll fluctuates on how much I made, that's protection for you as a company. You know, so if you're the CEO and you're trying to hit certain numbers or you're trying to grow your company at a certain rate, you know, you have a, a loss control in place in yeah. that you kind of meter and unmeter. Before we shut the book on this, do you want to say anything about how money motivates people and the kind of people you want to hire versus not in terms of like, because I think, like you said, a person who's attracted to a salary-based system versus a person who's attracted to a commission-based system, you might be getting kind of a different animal, there's, not just in terms of your internal culture, but who your culture attracts. There's a basic argument I've made a bunch of times at work. and In, in the food sales world, it, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, it was very individual number focused, very high commission, very low salary-based uh, industry. It's really moved towards less commission-based. Uh, I think this might go back to kind of our, our generational conversation that we've had in the past in that our generation teams tends to be more community team-focused versus, you know, the boomer and Gen mm -hmm. X generation are much more individual and family-focused and those sort of things. So simply just due to, the, you know, more millennials being in the workplace, I think millennials are more attracted to salary uh, than commission. But so for me, if my goals are to grow the company, I want people who want to grow the company, mm -hmm. not themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some very high performers on you know an individual basis that are like, hey, I'm just looking out for me. I'm trying to hit my numbers, and they're really, really good at it. Is that a team player, right? Is that a you know these these words? They might be a great for the company, great for the bottom line, but that, uh, for me, that's not that's not a team, and that doesn't drive the whole and drive, doesn't drive the boat forward, right? The old argument, there's a, there's a story about, I think it was sheep. Uh, a guy took, like, the, the highest wool-producing sheep and put them all in a, in a cage, and they, like, and then he took a bunch of, like, mid-performing sheep and put them in a different fence, and to see, and this might just be a, a story, right? <laughs> Who knows if this actually happened? But the story is that the, you know, 20 mid-performing sheep, like, five years down the road, were dramatically outperforming the you know, 20 individual highest performing ones. It's an interesting uh, thought experiment. My only pushback would be, you know, maybe it's folly to imagine that people necessarily want just the company to do better. Like maybe we're kind of, why do people actually work? It's true that the non-monetary and the, like the team goal and just wanting success, that there's a fulfillment that people work for especially if they have a certain type of job. But I think also, you know, high performers, low performers, mid performers who are just looking out for themselves. Of you know, course. Not, you don't have to be great to be a selfish jerk. And I, you I don't would, have to be a I bad would, selfish I would jerk. want employees that put the company above themselves, right? Like, you, you need a certain level of like, hey, look out for you, man. Like, <laughs> I, don't let the company take advantage of you, right? We pay you a salary for a reason. We want to keep you happy and keep you employed and keep you here. Uh, if you're satisfied with your life and your personal stuff, 
and we're helping to contribute to that, we kind of expect the same thing back from you. If you like the podcast, please consider visiting our website, which is workfriendspodcast.com. There you will find our sponsored Amazon link. If you buy anything on Amazon through that link, TJ and I get to uh, improve on our vast wealth um, by getting a couple pennies back from Amazon directly. It doesn't affect your cost of goods at all, but uh, anything you would do there would be much appreciated. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening, and please tell your friends about the show. Take care. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. So for Quick Hits today, I wanted to talk a little bit about sport and business. We both uh, were athletes. I was an athlete in college. You got paid money to be an athlete. <laughs> 20, 20 bucks a game. Hey, just a couple of thoughts about um, sports and business. It's something that always comes up for me during interviews just because it's like I have listed like my college and my major and that I was an academic All-American. And people always want to talk about sports in interviews with me. Have you ever had that experience? That, yeah, I think it's just that, that casual, like, ice-breaking thing, right? That's yeah. normal. I think there's, it's more, it's less that they think, you were able to swim moderately fast. You will be good at being an yeah. accountant here. I think, well, it's also the analogies, right? Like, a lot of teams, right? There's there's a team atmosphere, so there's the sports analogy, analogies, just the easiest, right? I just had a conversation with a former uh, Houston Astros pitcher who's now, like, the VP of sales for a company. Nice. Like, everything he said was a sports analogy, which, which is fine. <laughs> Because that's how that's the world he lived in, and that's the, the language he knows. And we would understand a sports analogy better than we would understand him talking directly about his company. Because you never worked there, and I never worked there. Yeah. So I, you seem to have some ideas about sports and business you wanted to dig into. Well, no, I mean these conversations happen at work to me, right? As someone who watched a lot of sports and involved in that, the, the topic that comes up the most to me is should cities subsidize in your city planning stuff. Should cities subsidize stadiums? Well, that is a slow pitch. That is an easy <laughs> one for me. No, no, and no. Cities are always told that stadiums will bring in a bunch of revenue and that they'll be able to host a bunch of concerts there. There'll be these money generators in all these different ways. To take one example, Soldier Field has approximately five non-football game events in the entire year. That's crazy to me. And it's one of the best stadiums, and it's in yeah. the There's third a music festival, best. a couple beer festivals, it's, and yeah. a couple big concerts. The truth is that you already have an industry for that, and you're going to be competing with them. And you building another stadium might help, but that's a big might. The other piece of this, and I just want to hit this one real quick, is over and over again, cities partially pay or front the money with the expectation that the owners will help them down the line. When <laughs> never, happens, never, yeah. never, never happens. happens. So when the St. Louis Rams built their new stadium, I believe it was five years ago, they took Wasn't out... that the, recent? It was very oh. recent. Oh, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, the St. Louis Rams. <laughs> NFL football fans will note, <laughs> this is not a team that exists anymore. And the city of St. Louis, a deeply impoverished city, is still paying off the debt that they incurred in the bonds to build that stadium. So this is interesting, right? Because I, I think it relates close to the Olympics too, right? The, 
no city has ever, at least in the last 20, 30 years, made money from the Olympics. And you're actually seeing fewer and fewer cities bid for them because they realize the financial impact is so negative on your city. Totally uh, agree. So Barcelona you, is the only, like, one of the very few examples where you're like, oh, good thing they had the Olympics. <laughs> let's let's take a city close to both of our hearts, M- Milwaukee, right? We both love spent Milwaukee. a fair amount of time. We both love Milwaukee. Great people, all that sort of stuff. In Chicago, I 100% agree. Chicago should never subsidize the stadium because those teams are not leaving, right? Take the Bucks or the Brewers, which could eat, the Bucks especially, could leave tomorrow. And that threat was put on the table by mm-hmm. the owners is that if you don't subsidize this team, we will take it elsewhere. A lot of finance people did the impact of like, well, you know, it, the, it doesn't balance out and all this sort of stuff. There's, there's something to city pride that like, I think is unable to be quantified and the Bucks leaving Milwaukee, I think hurts it more financially than what, or hurts it more than finances can quantify. So this is a big topic, but I want to be respectful of quick hits and answer this very succinctly. There's a reason that we don't pay terrorists for hostages. It's okay. that there could not be a more perfect metaphor. I well, there's listen. no time. There's there's no reason that the ownership of the Milwaukee Bucks should be believed. They've proven themselves to be yeah. dishonest people. But leaving that aside, there there's no reason that they couldn't leave again in the future. There there's no time when these threats ever go away. So if Milwaukee Fine. was to suddenly turn into the tech startup capital, sure. then maybe they would think, well, in two years, we'll have the leverage and the Bucks won't be able to pull this on us again. The owners just want to be in a city where they can get the most people attending games. And if Seattle will pay to help them build a stadium, it is in their financial best interest to move. So, therefore, it is on the city of Milwaukee, if you want to keep your team, treat these people like businessmen and crooks like they are, if you want, because you're not going to compete with Seattle in terms of attendance, you're not going to compete with them in terms of, you know, these sort of things. You have to compete with them in terms of subsidizing stadium. That's the only way you're going to compete with Seattle and keep them there. The threat never leaves, though, right? They always sure. will have the same amount of leverage. It's the same threat so, for GM to keep their auto plant in Detroit. Yep. Just understanding the basics of leverage, there's a reason, like... Yeah, it, you don't have to take it to a life-and-death situation like, <laughs> like, paying, like paying for hostages, but it's the same leverage issue, yeah. right? They, they're going, if they have you over the, the barrel it's today, a numbers game. they'll have you over the barrel tomorrow. So when if you're Chicago Mar- pays to keep Sears in it, town, just like Detroit gets, you know, gives deals to GM to keep GM in town, they keep having the leverage that they have. That doesn't go away just because you give them some sweetheart deal. Because there's always going to be a next thing. So as a Milwaukee resident who enjoys sports, you would vote against the subsidy. Yeah, and I, I, I want to be, I want to be more nuanced on this. I want to take no, the TJ don't. position and feel Hot flexible. Takes. But the <laughs> reason that I don't is because I've never seen a situation where I was like, man, thank God that the city paid to build you know, a brown state. I think you're more like proud that. to say you're from Milwaukee if because they have the Brewers and the Bucks than you would if you were from, I don't know, Joliet. Maybe. But, and, and now we're going to get further afield. But if, if the question is just the city itself, do you make the city better or worse? There's a way in which 
anytime you do any kind of large project in a city, you are subsidizing the interests of one group at the cost of, of another course. group. You have to ask yourself, how much do I want to give money from the working people of my city to billionaires to support the interest of a group of the city? Now, it may appear to you that sports is, the, is so central to so many people in Milwaukee. But another thing that might be central to them is a Money. school, <laughs> yeah. a park. Listen, I, I agree. Road. I agree with all that. And, and uh, anyone who you know has HBO has seen the the Bill Simmons commercials where he ends oh, it he's with. The worst. And I think I think billionaires should pay for their own effing stadiums. To me, that's that's asinine in a bunch of layers. And we like get into this because that's missing the point. To me, that's missing the point. Of course, billionaires should pay for their own stadiums that they're making money hand over fist in. They are making a financial argument to say. If you don't subsidize it here, I will make more money over there. If you want to keep us, you pay me. Totally. That's leverage. That's I don't blame yeah. them for doing that. Well, the problem is not that... They don't owe it to the city. No, the government owes it to their citizens. The problem is that regulation You believe in happened. federal regulation that city or state money should not go towards private... Ventures? Not private how you, ventures. How do you regulate that? You just make it sports. Sports? Oh. No, look, look, you're, I want you to think oh. about this rationally. Sports is given a free monopoly. Like we, sports is the worst. We regulate sports <laughs> by itself over yeah. and over again. That's fair. There's no reason we need to pretend that, oh, if we make this law for sports, then we have to make it for everything. No. We could make it just for the NFL. We could make it just for the NBA. We could make it just for MLB. Picking and choosing is in the nature of how the government bodies have always dealt with sports, including their labor issues, including their monopolies, etc. I feel like we could argue about this that's for a long time, but I want to give you <laughs> the last word here if you... No, no, that's... I, 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 I'd like... I, yeah, uh, we'll have to take this offline in the federal regulation piece because I, I, I think there's a piece to that. I just don't know how it, how it happens. Well... I know it was in the Nader platform. <laughs> yeah, and one of one of my very favorite Naderisms. <laughs> my least favorite was George W. Bush. Oh, all right. Thanks. On that note, <laughs> thanks everyone.